This is Rena Kinsey, Executive Vice President of People and Culture at Emerald and Advertising Week. And on today's episode, we're speaking with Shelly Palmer. Shelly is a professor of advanced media and residence at Syracuse University's SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. He's the CEO of the Palmer Group, a consulting practice that helps Fortune 5 companies with technology, media, and marketing. Shelly is the creator of the popular free online course, Generative AI for Execs. He's named LinkedIn's top voice in technology. Shelly covers tech and business for Fox 5's Good Day New York and is a regular commentator on CNN and CNBC. Shelly is also the host for Shelly Palmer Live Livestream, airing on Wednesdays where he talks about what's new, what's next, and what it means for your business with a focus on AI and emergent technology. Welcome, Shelly. I'd like to first start by asking you some basic questions for the listeners, so I'm sorry if I'm going to bore you with them, but what is generative AI and is that any different from AI? AI is a catch-all phrase. It means whatever you want it to mean at this point. The term artificial intelligence is either part of a discipline called machine learning or machine learning is part of a discipline called artificial intelligence. At this point, every scientist and every person in the business uses those terms so interchangeably they've come to mean nothing. Generative AI is a very specific kind of artificial intelligence. Uh, You can think of it best as a, a word calculator. What it does is it takes a very large corpus of data, in the case of OpenAI's ChatGPT, pretty much the entire public internet, and it puts all of those uh, words, it put all of those words in a database. Now, the way it did it was it created tokens. They found that you could give a number to each letter in the alphabet, and you could actually represent each number and punctuation and space with a number, but it wasn't as efficient as taking a few letters and making what's called a token. So what they will do is they will look at uh, large, large, large writings, uh, pretty much everything they could find, and they would assign tokens to every three or four letters of the alphabet and or three or four letters of a word, and they stored them in in a massive database. And what a word calculator does, what a generative pre-trained transformer model does is it tries to calculate the next best token based on all the tokens that have come before it. So this really is to the creation of natural language uh, prose or poetry, what a handheld calculator is to doing equations. If you had a really good TI, you know, business calculator that does all the, you know, sine and cosine and all the different mortgage things are built in and all the different net present values are built in and you're using it to do advanced calculations with numbers, these tools allow you to do it without your knowledge, really, advanced calculations in words. It's always going to predict the next best token, which comes with some really interesting side effects. So the most important thing to understand about a word calculator, at least a generative AI word calculator, is that these uh, the name of the most famous one is ChatGPT. And the GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Very different 
from a neural network that learns by uh, your actions. So if I am a neural network that's running the Facebook feed or a neural network that's running the TikTok feed, if you swipe, if you like, it knows. In a pre-trained transformer, it's pre-trained. It doesn't learn anything from you. It simply reacts based on its training. And so there are many different ways you can constrain the outputs. There are many different ways you can learn to fine tune these models to make them do what you need them to do. But out of the box, the consumer chat GPT plus for 20 bucks a month, it's simply going to find the next best token based on what it is you wrote and what it thinks you meant. Another way to think about this, just to put a fine point on it, this is a system that could pass the bar exam or get a 170 something on an LSAT, but could not pass preschool. And the reason is it's seen thousands of bar exams. It's seen millions of LSATs. So it understands what the questions are and it has patterns for the answers. But when you ask it a question that a five-year-old could easily, easily solve, like here's a cup, here's a straw, and here's a bucket of water. Please figure a way to get the bucket of some of the water into the cup using the straw. Well, the pre-trained transformer model hasn't ever seen a question like that. It's never seen words like this. No idea. You're going to get total nonsense. It'll give you words, but those words won't be meaningful. It'll, it could give you the right answer, but the chances are it's going to give you something that you're not expecting. Whereas if you ask it a question about contract law, it's seen that question a million times before. It knows exactly how to look back. It knows exactly what words should come next. And it's going to, it's going to score extremely well on, on the, on the LSATs or the MCATs or medical boards, it's going to do that beautifully because it's seen examples of it. So we shouldn't describe anything magical to this tool set. Generative AI should be thought of as a very sophisticated word calculator that is capable of giving you what it believes based on what your input is, the next best token in a row. And it's nothing more than that. Wow. That's so fascinating. Something you said that makes me want to ask this question, and that is using chat GPT, would it be considered plagiarism? I mean, you're a professor. If your students used it, would you consider that plagiarism? So we have to go deep into what all of this means. First of all, there are very big feelings about this, and everyone has their own ideas about what's real and what's fake, what's plagiarism, what's copyright infringement, what's fair use. Everybody's got their own theories about that. To answer your question as best I can, I believe that we can give a name to November 30th, 2022. That's the date that ChatGPT became publicly available where you could where you could sign on. Prior to that date, there was almost no synthetic only content in the world. Why? Because the tools didn't really exist. There was plenty of computer-generated graphics. There's plenty of computer-generated prose. But all of, all of it had the very heavy hand of a human being involved in its creation. ChatGPT is based, the original was based on GPT 3.5, which had scraped the internet up to uh, September 2021. So absolutely everything prior to 2021, September 2021, you can reasonably assume was created by a human being or a human being, if they were using any kind of tools, they were really directing those tools with a heavy hand. 
post-November 30th, 2022. And every day we get past that. I call that the CG barrier uh, or the CG boundary, uh, curation generation boundary. Prior to November 30th, 2022, we were curating everything. And if you were plagiarizing, you were personally copying somebody's work with intentionality and you would find the work and you would plagiarize it. Post the CG boundary, now in the generation era, you are going to be empowered by tools that allow you to synthetically generate content with an AI coworker. Now, this recording today is happening in uh, September of 2023. And in the very recent past, both Microsoft and Google made their co-pilots commercially available. The co-pilot for Microsoft is called Office 365 Copilot, and it adds generative AI capability, word calculator capability to the entire Microsoft Office. Teams can now summarize a meeting. Um, word can now help you auto-complete and write. Excel will write formulas for you and with you. You can take a, a, a Word document and ask uh, the co-pilot to make it a PowerPoint presentation and back and forth. This is also true with Google's workspace with Bard. Same thing. Both companies are charging $30 a month on top of their normal fees to give you this AI empowerment, which will make you more efficient and increase your productivity. But something else very important is happening at the same time. Some percentage of your writing is no longer yours. You are now being assisted synthetically. And so every day we get farther from November 30th, 22, every time a feature like this gets added to uh, Microsoft Office, Google Workspace, Salesforce, Zoom now has summaries. Go down the list. As everybody adds generative tools to their products, we're getting farther and farther away from a time when you could say with, with certainty, this was created by a human. And so Microsoft solved this problem by saying they will indemnify every one of their clients against all copyright claims. Now, Microsoft is a $2.45 trillion market cap company. That's about as big a company as you get to be. Uh, they're you know, one of the biggest. What they're saying is when you get sued because you're, quote, plagiarizing or infringing on someone's copyright because you've used Copilot inside of Microsoft Word, Microsoft will handle the court case. Go ahead and use it without fear. So we don't need to worry about plagiarism. We don't need to worry about um, copyright infringement in the context of our day-to-day -day work, again, because of Microsoft. But it's also impossible to imagine a future where people won't be using this more and more and more and more. It's like when Google first became the the clear winner of the search wars. Teachers would tell their students, I don't want you using a search engine. I want you going to the library and doing research the old fashioned way. Could you imagine in 2023, any professor at any level, in even grade school, telling students not to use the internet to do their work? This is a tool that we all use and, and we are taught to use it. In fact, using it well should be part of your education. You should be a great Google user. You should know Boolean operators. You should really understand how to get the most out of that search engine in an efficient way. I cannot imagine in any way five years from now 
I'd like to say today, but it's not happening today because, like I said, there are some very big feelings about this. I cannot imagine teachers not fully embracing this and understanding that this is never going away. It's never going away. Not only is it never going away, it's going to get better and better and better and better. And what that means for society, we could have a philosophical conversation about. You want to predict the future? Get out your crystal ball. I'll get out my crystal ball. We'll, we'll try and invent a future or predict a future, which we're going to be wrong about. But people are going to use this as sure as we're sitting here. Good people and bad people, good actors and bad actors. And what it means to create something is forever changed. It will never be the same. And the Copyright Office is going to have to catch up. And businesses that make a living with protected intellectual property are going to have to catch up. But you cannot choose your metaphor. Put the genie back in the bottle, the toothpaste back in the tube, the cow back in the bar. You can't do any of this. It's ship has sailed. We're, we're, choose your metaphor. We could ask ChatGPT for better metaphors. <laughs> you're not going to change this. This is never going away, ever. And you're not going to constrain it and you're not going to restrain it and you're not going to outlaw it. You're going to do none of that. People are going to use these tools forever and they're going to get more powerful every single day. Knowing that, what do you think is the best way for people to start preparing for heavier utilization of this tool in the future? Like what can, what should people do right now instead of resisting it, instead of having, I think the fear is that chat GPT is coming to replace all of our jobs that in the future, in five years from now, it will be two chat GPs having this conversations instead of Shelly and Ren. So that fear is well-founded for some and unfounded for others. Um, And you need to break it down. First of all, the way you prepare is you choose the model that you like, whether it's ChatGPT from OpenAI or Claude from Anthropic or Llama from Facebook and Meta. You, you, you choose the model you like, Bard from Google, and you use it for a half hour a day, every day, no matter what. You just incorporate it into your daily life. Just use it to learn to use it. It'll be good at some stuff. It'll suck at other stuff. You're not going to be able to properly constrain the model in your prompt crafting and or your prompt engineering, but you'll learn. And, and you'll also figure out what, what's good and what's bad. What what become instantly obvious to anyone who's using this every day is that the greater your subject matter expertise, the better the output. This is, sounds amazingly like life. People who suck are going to suck with ChatGPT. People who are good are going to get better because it will enhance their productivity. People who are great are going to get much greater. And so these tools simply enhance your capability set. What they don't replace is subject matter expertise. If you don't know what you're doing, ChatGPT is not going to help you. And if you ask it a question that you don't understand the answer to, you're not going to understand the answer. So how much you bring to these tools is how much you get out of it. And that's critically important. Jobs will be lost and jobs will be found. The jobs that will be lost. You can think of these tools... Not chat, GP by, chat GPT by itself, but any of these uh, AI tools. And, and you really have to understand that we're seven years into neural networks, eight years into neural networks. We're five, six years into generative pre-trained transformers. The only thing new is that there was a consumer model called ChatGPT that came out last year. But these tools have been with us and they've been doing the job they do. If you use Facebook, you've been in the algorithm. If you use TikTok, you've been in an algorithm and it has been 
tracking you and understanding you and taking your feedback. If you have a self-driving car, it's using neural networks to figure out, I'm coming to a yellow light. Should I slow down, speed up or stop? Like it, it's making those determinations. If you have an iPhone or a Galaxy phone and you are taking a picture, the photography is computational. How do you think low light photography works? How do you think the bokeh effect, when you press a button, it takes the background and blurs you? That's all AI, all of it. So, you know, we are we are immersed in, in AI in our daily lives. It's only that chat GPT became a consumer product when we understand what a chat client looks like and you go, oh, I can talk to, I can talk to this thing. But people aren't using it. Uh, generally, they're not using it the way professionals are using it. If you use the consumer product for 20 bucks a month, the chat GBT plus product, then, and you expect it to do all kinds of things, you're going to be disappointed. It's going to make a lot of mistakes. It's going to, they call it hallucination. Uh, it's a bad term. It doesn't really hallucinate. It's just trying to pick the next best word. And if it doesn't know the pattern, it just puts other words there. And maybe they're, they're sensical and maybe they're nonsensical, but it's just going to put other words there. But grownups don't use these tools this way. There's only two ways to use these chat clients. One, in a professional environment. One is to use the word calculation capabilities to create prose that you need for business. So that might be marketing copy, HR copy, wherever you need to write. But you need to constrain these models. So you're going to create secondary databases that house the data that you're going to restrict the model to. And then you're going to use um, the natural language understanding and natural language processing of chat GBT to translate into your database uh, and ask your database for the data. And you're going to constrain it. And you're going to say to chat GBT in the prompt, if you can't find the answers to the question I'm asking you in the database, I've just pointed you to tell me you don't know. So it's not going to make up anything. So that you'd create, they're called vector databases. You would create a vector database and the term of art is context injection. They call the window, your chat window, the context window. And you would inject a, a, a prompt that you would engineer specifically to look at data that you have stored for it to look at. That's one way. The other way to use this is as a transformation layer where you've already got an existing database that you've had for years and it's well-structured. You've got good data hygiene, good data governance. You know how to ask the database, the questions you can ask a database. You know, what's the last day I can sell a full price barbecue grill at the Home Depot on Route 17 before I have to mark it down, transship it or send it back to the manufacturer? Like that's a question the SQL programmer would write a query about and you'd get back your answer. If you've got a what question and you don't know how to write in SQL, you could use the natural language tools of a chat GPT as a translate as a transformation layer. It would translate your English language query into uh, the language of the database you're using and bring back a response that you could read in, in natural language. Wow, that's cool. I can talk to my data as a person as opposed to having to know how to advanced ways to understand how to you know be a database programmer or a data scientist. So that really increases my productivity. So that's where the grown-ups are using, and I say grown-ups, that's where businesses are using this stuff. It's not like I'm going to take the consumer product. The consumer product is good for like we have a chart, high stakes, low stakes, high fluency, high accuracy. If you're down and to the left, high fluency, low stakes. What is a task that fits that? Well, a task that fits that would be like, I want to write a birthday poem for my seven-year-old. <laughs> okay, if you happen to have a seven-year-old who needs a birthday poem, 
you're not going to go wrong with chat GPT. It's going to, it'll rhyme. It'll have all the parts in it. You say, I want you to write, you know, he or she likes the horses and um, the baseball and, and whatever they like. And it's going to write you a poem. You can correct that poem. All you really care about is that it rhymes. Low stakes, high fluency. If you're going to make an investment in a business, which I would call high stakes, high accuracy, it's the wrong tool. You just shouldn't do it. Like you're not going to get an answer that is going to make any sense and it's not the right tool for the job. So, so the big issues that we have to deal with now are educating everyone into what this is, but much more importantly, what this isn't. When it comes down to losing your job, entire fields are going to go away because the cognitive non-repetitive work that used to only be able to be done by humans can now be done by machines. Now, you want to calculate or understand which jobs are going away. It's actually kind of simple. If your job is algorithmic, it's done. And what do I mean by that? If you follow a set of steps to do your job, my job is to take a number in one box in Excel, look at it, operate on it with these four equations and put it in another box in Excel and then write a narrative about how it got there, that job's over. I don't care who does it. I don't care how smart you think you are. If you can write a set of rules that says, this is how this is going to go. Now, unfortunately, most people don't understand how rule-based many jobs are. If your job is to write background music in a specific style and the style has a name, I need to write a a chase sequence that's high energy in the genre EDM, electronic dance music. There are algorithmic rules for how you take a chord progression and a melody and make it sound like EDM as opposed to reggae or rock or jazz or bebop. Each of these musical styles has a name that a musicologist can go to school to learn and what and the way they learn the style is they understand, well, in this style of music, strong beats fall here, weak beats fall here, uh, chords are voiced the following way, melodies follow these kinds of patterns, they're more syncopated or less syncopated. Like, there are actual rules you can write down to, set, to take a song and translate that song from a bebop jazz song to a Baroque version of the same song. People think that you need to be a musician that has musical talent and you have to go to music school for years and like, this is only something a human could do. No, this is something you could teach a computer to do because it's an algorithm. Well, how many other places in the world are there algorithms like that? And the answer is, you'd be surprised how many things humans do where they're following a set of rules they learned in school and those rules can be written down. If you can write down the rules, that job could be done by AI, not just GPT. AI, AI, writ large, someone, and, and the way to think about AI, if it's a danger or not a danger, is you could think of it as super automation. If you could, if you can imagine it being automated, then it's going to be automated. So the way our thesis is anything that can be automated will be automated. Anything that can be hacked will be hacked. Anything that can be connected will be connected. Anything that can speak will speak. And anything that can listen will hear and understand. Like that. So that's where we are. Um, it's, you know, there are only four kinds of work. And we've always been very 
parochial and narcissistic as humans about them. There's manual repetitive work. Well, we, we got rid of that pretty quick. Cotton gin started getting rid of manual repetitive work. Assembly line workers were replaced by robots. There's manual non-repetitive, like frying hamburgers. It's still cheaper to have someone fry a hamburger than put a robot in there to fry a hamburger, although not much and maybe not for long. There's cognitive repetitive work. We got rid of that pretty early too. It's called data processing, right? You needed to understand what it was, but once you understood what it was, you could just like, that's what a data processing center does. It processes data. We have a name for it. And then the last bastion of human dominance was cognitive non-repetitive work, white collar work. The things that, you know, only people can do. It's being challenged because we have intelligence decoupled from consciousness and it's able to sort out what it sees, what it hears, what it reads. And it's able to operate on that with the kind of um, quality level you'd only expect from a human being. This is pissing some people off and it's causing people to be incredibly scared. I'll leave you with this thought on this subject. This is a a problem for people who are not good at their jobs. It's not a problem for people who are good at their jobs. Now, I will again, some entire industries, some entire functions are going to be replaced. But the people who are great at those functions will figure this out early and they will have other skills. The people who are in danger are the people who aren't figuring this out and don't have other skills. And by the way, probably can't be trained to have other skills or don't want to be trained to have other skills. So I've lived this many times in the past. This is not the first time technology has, has come for people's livelihoods and it won't be the last time. How do you think industries like marketing and advertising should start using these tools now so that some of the repetitive work that you are mentioning makes room for people who can make decisions and more strategy instead of the, the repetitive work. Not even sure marketing strategy is a human function anymore. Um, we've been curating for 3,500 years from the first Greek proscenium stage, from the first uh, Roman theater or Greek amphitheater. If you go to Ephesus, which is outside of Kushadasa in Turkey, there are four amphitheaters that have been that are there a 7,000-seater, a 14,000-seater, a 21,000-seater, and oddly enough, a 28,000-seater. I don't think they've taken that one out of the ground yet. I've been there. Years. I'm Turkish. I've been there. <laughs> so it's magnificent. And what I love about the amphitheaters in Kushadasa that, uh, is that um, they had indoor plumbing and they had concession stands. Like, And they were like – they are almost indistinguishable in their build from the theater at Madison Square Garden today. I mean, it's really the same thing. And why were there so many theaters built there? And the answer I got from the docent when I took the tour years and years and years ago was that every person in the town was guaranteed a seat every night to see an oration, a a, a comedy or a tragedy, a political debate, hear a concert. These evenings were curated and the content was pre-produced. They would go there, practice, they had to practice the play and they curated the night. And I mean, exactly what we've been doing forever. A curated evening of entertainment or political debate or education. We have been curating pretty much as long as we've had written history. And if you want to see the probably the best example of curation, uh, well, I'll say it differently. Our first encounter with an alien intelligence, our first encounter with artificial intelligence, what did we do with it? 
we set in a metric called engagement and we asked it to curate content to maximize engagement. That's where and Facebook is a, the best example of that. TikTok is the best example of that. The tick, TikTok feed, it learns from everything you do. It services content that is supposed to keep you addicted to TikTok and it does a pretty great job. But everything on TikTok is pre-produced, all of it. You produce stuff and you upload it to TikTok. Then TikTok decides right person, right place, right time, right message. That's what TikTok does. So our, the first encounter we had with alien intelligence, which is artificial intelligence, we used it to curate. But at the CG boundary that I mentioned that I kind of coined that term, and I, I don't know if it's going to catch on. It's just my own thing. At the curation generation boundary, now in near or in real time, at low or no cost, I can generate content right person, right place, right time, right content, generated, not curated. Wait a minute. I don't have to spend the time and energy to produce something. I don't have to try and guess using all my CRM tools and all my data. Are you the right person for this? I can take all the data and generate something at low or no cost in very close to real time. If you don't like it, I'll just generate something else. I'll just keep generating stuff for you until I get it right. So you think about that for a marketer or an advertiser, this is the most profound shift in the entire industry ever in the history of the industry. Because I used to have to go make a commercial and it costs money. I have to used to go make a piece of art. I used to have to go create an IAB standard unit for the internet. I used to have to go and make stuff and then try to surface it in front of the right person at the right place, right time to drive engagement, drive transaction, drive a conversion, drive whatever my metric was, whatever, how I'm going to measure my success, whatever my KPIs are, whatever my OKRs are. I don't have to do that anymore. Now what I can do is I can relentlessly pursue you. I can relentlessly try to persuade you with generated content until I get it right. So my thought is that like you could say Kennedy was the first TV president and you could say that um, Obama was the first internet president and maybe Trump was the first social media president. Whoever's getting elected now is going to be the first generative AI marketing president because they'll just set it and forget it. They'll just, okay, we're going to make you vote. We're going to make you vote for us and we're going to keep trying to get you to do it until we get you to do it. Uh, it might be not be that simple, but it is that profound a shift. So this is marketing will be one of the, and by the way, it's not just words, it's pictures and videos and audio, right? It's multimodal in every way. So it's not that it's just chat GPT is coming for you. These are, we're going to use the full spectrum of multimodal uh, generation to put the right experience in front of you. And it's going to be all data driven. And you're going to tell us through your behaviors and we'll collect that data either with or without your knowledge, with or without your consent. We're going to collect that data. Facebook doesn't really ask you. They just do it. Google doesn't really ask you. You click okay, but they won't let you use Google if you don't click okay. So if you're using the tool, you're using the tool. It's like you can say on a website, I don't accept your cookie thing. It's like, and then they just say, okay, can't, sorry, then you can't be here. It's sort of a ridiculous, right? So you you agree to something, you don't even understand what's happening. And then they're going to use that data to generate content that's going to persuade you to do something they want you to do. That's where this is going very quickly. Every one of my marketing clients is working on this right now. I'll have one client that's not doing this. Not one. How about in the HR space and people and culture? How could HR leaders partner with AI to to do their HR functions, you know, the easiest one I could think of is probably screening for resumes. I'm sure there's going to be an AI tool that does a screening ahead of time um, in order for you to, you know, get the candidate into the other stages. What are some other ways that you think AI is going to either help or replace some roles in HR? 
So you've just hit the dark side of AI. It has <laughs> nothing to do with GPT at all. It has nothing to do with transformers at all. There are quite a few resume reading tools out there that are AI based. Some are, are use statistical machine learning. Some use neural networks. Some use some combination of both. Here's the problem. <clears throat> We're not allowed to ask certain questions. In the infinite wisdom of the lawmakers and regulators, you can't ask gender, you can't ask race, you can't ask your address. There's a lot of things you cannot ask. If you sat in front of me in an interview, I'd know you were male or female because I have eyes. I could tell if you were white or black or Hispanic or Asian or whatever, I, you know, because I have eyes. But, but if your resume, I'm blind. What do these resume reading tools do? Well, they use proxy data for the data they don't have. They're not going to leave a hole in the, in the algorithm. They have to figure out, especially now I've got some diversity quotas. I've got there's all kinds of rules and regulations and corporate entities have senior executives whose entire job is social responsibility and diversity and inclusion. Whether this is right or wrong is not the subject of this conversation. We have this. We don't have the data. So they don't know if you're male or female or black or white or where you live. But they know your credit score. What can I infer from your credit score? Well, in the open credit reports, which are not on your resume, I can pull in a profile that I bought from a third party and the resume reading tools do. So you couldn't ask the question, you can't ask it on the resume, but you can go proxy up anything you want to proxy up. Now, the, fic the, the fiction of all this and why regulators and lawmakers are so much the villain here, and it's the road to hell paved with good intentions, and it is the road to hell. If you think that an algorithm needs to be told if you are African-American, Hispanic, non-white, Hispanic, Caucasian, like whatever those delineations are, you're, you are misguided in the extreme. Because algorithms are not human. They are going to look at every single attribute on the resume, where you went to college, where you like, all that's on there. So if you go to a college that's known to be predominantly Hispanic, if you in, in a neighborhood that's like, it's going to infer your race. Here's the problem. It doesn't know because in the infinite wisdom of the regulators, we weren't allowed to ask the question. So you now go to the database programmer or you now go to the resume reading programmer and you say, I need you to guarantee me that we are making our diversion and uh, in inclusion um, quotas because we have quotas about you know who can be here and race and gender and all this and the and the engineer looks you straight in the eye and says i don't know well why don't you know it's like because you told me i wasn't allowed to ask the question i don't have a definitive i could have if you if i if there was a checkbox that said male female prefer not to say non-binary and i was allowed to ask that question even if i wasn't allowed to use that data in the decision making when you said make sure i have 50 percent male and 50 percent female candidates i could have given you blindly 50 50. but since i have no idea i'm only inferring and i'm not actually inferring the algorithm is inferring i can't limit the bias 
You've given me no way to comply with the law. You've given me no way to check my science because I wasn't allowed to ask any of these questions. And the data is physically not there, but the proxy data is. And here's the evil part. So the resume reading software reads the software. And this is, has nothing to do with the kind of AI that's being used. Doesn't matter. It's reading a resume. It, meaning a computer is reading a resume, not a person. And you can imagine that it's taking into consideration every single thing, including typos, including misspelled words, including words that are spelled the way that someone who was brought up in England would spell them as opposed to someone in America. Like, Everything you don't think matters, the algorithms see. You get turned down for a job. Why? Well, it used your credit score as a proxy for whatever it used it for. And your grandmother was sick and you missed a payment on your credit card the month you had to sit with her in the hospital. Well, that knocks 50 points off your credit score. That's going to take a year to come back. And you're below the threshold. And you lose your job, but you have absolutely no feedback loop, no way to know that's why you lost your job. And now your resume is deprecated. And since the same resume reading company probably reads for 50 big companies, because there's only a few that do for the Fortune 500, you're blacklisted. You're gone. You don't even know. You lost the job. You have no idea why. You have no idea how. You have no recourse. The person who didn't hire you never got to see your resume ever. So they don't even know that you were a candidate. They can't tell you why you didn't get the job. This is a black hole. This is where the kind of like bizarre programming bias and the bizarre laws and regulations that we have are not compatible with the data-driven decision-making that we're asking our systems to make. And so, you know, bias comes in a lot of different forms. I asked uh, MidJourney to create a picture. And the entire prompt was a fan with W slash smartphone watching football. And what came back were four images of 20 something year old white guys holding smartphones, wearing bomber jackets with short cropped hair, watching soccer in a big soccer stadium. Now I'm an American. To me, football is American football, but in the world, soccer is football. And a typical soccer fan is a 20 something year old white guy holding a smartphone. Now I could have asked Midjourney for a family. I could have asked it for a mixed race. I could have asked it and it would have given me what I wanted. But when I just said a fan with smartphone watching football, its bias was to that. How would you even know that that was the bias? If you didn't go looking, if I showed you the picture, you'd go, yeah, that's a fan watching football with a smartphone. Would you think that it, all four images were biased that way? No, you would, because we won't think that way as people. Why wouldn't that have been a woman with a kid watching football? Like, why? Why? Because there aren't typically women, a grandmother's taking their grandchildren to a soccer game is not a typical fan with a smartphone. Now, is that a reflection of the culture? Is that a bias? Well, it's both. It is a reflection of the culture. It's a reflection of what the average fan would be. It's biased for sure to what an average fan would be. Is it aligned with our human values? I don't know. Is it? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I can't get humans aligned with my human values. How am I possibly going to get machines aligned with my human values? So there's a dark side to this that's so dark and it's almost opaque to the average person. They're sitting going, oh, it's going to take my job. Oh, it hallucinates. It's like, you think that's your problem? No, 
This is we're looking at a monocultural, highly biased worldview that's based. It's a reflection of the the bulk of the data that's been collected, and I'm not sure that the bulk that we that the bulk of the data we put out there is a reflection of our highest best selves. Like, is that that who we aspire to be as humans? Is that who we aspire? No, it's who we actually are, which are apparently more misogynistic than we'd like to admit, more you know racist than we'd like to admit, more highly. I mean, people once asked asked me about how you could make Facebook, you know, better. And I started to laugh and I said, you, you think this is Facebook's fault that there's hate speech, hate speech. You want to make Facebook better than be nicer on Facebook post kinder, gentler posts, you know, do some attaboys, girls, Yay. Way to go. This is a, post some good news. It's like you, Facebook will be better overnight. If everybody started posting like fun stuff, that's nice. And everybody was polite. But that's not what people post, not the bulk of it. And so Facebook is a reflection of who we are. It's not, it's not biased. It's a reflection. And so the coding, the training of AI models is based on a reflection of the internet. Whose worldview should be imposed on that? Is Sam Altman the new president of the world? Is Mark Zuckerberg the new king of the internet? Like, is Elon Musk the guy who you want as the as the moral center of your AI coworker, it's like, um, Chinese government's training models now that are going to be trained with the highest, best ideals of the communist party. I don't even know what that means, but it scares the crap out of me. Who would like, I don't think I want to know what that model has to say, but there are a billion plus Chinese people who are going to use it. Is that good or bad? I don't know. It just is. This is the future. So there's a there's a fun side to this. There's like the popular culture freak out. Oh, is the robot taking my job? And then there's the real dark side to this. And we haven't even touched on the bad actors being able to do bad at the same power level that good people can do good. You know, I can write marketing copy that's about, you know, buy this uh, food supplement. It's going to make you thinner or healthier or happier or whatever it's going to do. I can also put bots out there that are going to, you know, sow misinformation and hate and division and all kinds of nasty stuff with exactly the same power. Uh, that's not good. <laughs> I mean, that's not, but we're there. I mean, we're, we're, we're not going there. We're there. And like, we are living it now. So then how do we navigate through the dark side of AI? We have to be vigilant. And we are going to, as every generation has before us, figure out what our communications tools can do and can't do. And we will learn, as we have for millennia, we will learn how to interpret what we are being told, what we're what we're seeing and what we're hearing. I, I have four granddaughters. The youngest is one, the oldest is 15. And the 15 and the 13-year-old have grown up purely digital. They don't remember a time when there weren't smartphones with glass faces on them that were little mini computers in their hands. My one and three-year-old granddaughters will never know a time that where they didn't have an AI assistant or coworker. They will never live in a world where there's purely original content by humans. 
they will understand that the way you and I understand the world of television that we grew out of, the world of the internet that we helped form, the world, like what is it to be a digital native? What is it to be a digital immigrant? Well, we figured it out. They will figure it out. And I have, <clears throat> look, very high hopes for for the, the future. And I'm, as a uh, someone who is sort of a self-proclaimed technologist, I'm very optimistic by nature. I don't look at the, there's always been the dark side of everything. There's always been bad and it balances out. And, you know, on balance, at least in the movies, the good guys win. Um, in my experience, good guys mostly win. Not all the time, mostly win. And you have to define a win if it's an economic win, maybe it's not always the good guys. If it's a, I'm a professional father and grandfather win, that one's easy. And, you know, so how you define success and how you define a win, I think matters as to how you answer the question. AI should not be feared. It is a tool to be used, which means it's a tool to be abused. I can build a house with a hammer and bash somebody's head in with it. They're both use cases that are fully within the hammer's capability set. You're the human. You have to determine how you use the tool. And we will figure it out as humans have figured it out from the very beginning. I have no doubt in my mind that this is not the end of civilization as we know it, but it is the last transformation for sure. This is the transition from AI's transition from curation to generation. And we're going to continue to write history, but it will no longer be purely human history. It's going to be human and synthetic history written from now on. There's no pure human history to be written any longer. We have passed that threshold. And I don't know that that's scary or important, but it's certainly a demarcation line. There is no more purely human content. It no longer exists. Do with you will with that. How about for the good guys that are and the women and the non-binary good people who are listening right now? What resources do you, Shelley, have for them to learn about AI, to maybe figure out how to incorporate more AI into their business? Well, first, I would say to everybody that you have to use it every day. So just go go pick the tool of choice and get the paid version so it, it actually has some features. At the moment, the dominant tool set is, uh, and I don't work for these guys and I have no financial interest in this whatsoever. The dominant tool set is ChatGPT Plus. It's 20 bucks a month. If you got the 20 bucks a month, spend it. That's a good place to spend it because you're investing in yourself and put a solid half hour in every day, no matter what. And if you could put an hour in, put an hour in. I mean, every day Not, and don't miss a day. Um, we have a, a, a free course called Generative AI for Execs. You can find it at courses.shellypalmer.com. There's also a resource page, uh, shellypalmer.com slash AI, pretty easy. Shelly Palmer is just S-H-E-L-L-Y-P-A-L-M-E-R.com slash AI. And there you'll find all kinds of case studies and free reference material, links to the course as well. The course is free. There's no advertising in it. We're not selling anything. We're just trying to give people the uh, opportunity to learn. Our business is a consulting practice. We work mostly with Fortune 500 companies and big brands and big media uh, on things like AI. Um, so these are tools we use in our, you know, in our business. 
where we do actually charge our clients, but we have, it's just free for anyone to use. And I, but whether you use our course or someone else's, the only way to get good at this is to practice. And, you, you know, I don't know if anyone taught you to use email. Maybe you took a class in Excel one day. Maybe you took a PowerPoint class back in the day. You know, someone showed you how to use Microsoft Teams or Zoom. No one's going to jump out and teach you to use AI. You're going to have to, for your own self-knowledge, self-improvement, you're going to have to do this on your own. And this is a skill. The better you are at prompt engineering, prompt crafting, prompt architecture, whatever name you want to give it, the better you are at crafting the prompts you need to craft to get the output you need, the more powerful you're going to be and the more competitive you're going to be. And understand that there are people coming in the, there are people in the world who are, who are already great at what they do. And they're going to look at this and like, oh my, oh my goodness, I can be 10 times better than I was yesterday at what I do. Those are the people taking your jobs, right? People who can do 10, the work of 10 people using these tools and you're, you can't. And no company wants to hire somebody who isn't, you know, super powerful. That's coming. It won't happen overnight, but you're going to be competing against people who know tech better than you do. So learn your tech, learn it from us, learn it from YouTube. And all this stuff is free. Also, I think it's really important. Like you don't need to pay thousands of dollars to learn to do this. Go on YouTube, go on, you know, just Google, you know, how to best, best practices, prompt engineering, best practices, prompt crafting. You sit down and do it. Watch a couple of YouTube videos. If you, you'll know the ones that are garbage. Like if the person's boring, you go find someone you like. <laughs> It's not, there, there, there's no end to the data that's out there that, and, and the remediation you can have. You just have to want to do it. Thank you so much. I did sign up for your course and I will definitely share it when we share your podcast so that our listeners can have access to the course link. I really appreciate your time. This has been a fascinating conversation and I can't wait for our listeners to let us know what they think. My pleasure. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more podcasts like this one, be sure to check out Advertising Week's growing network of audio podcasts for the advertising, marketing, and technology industries at www.advertisingweek.com slash podcasts.